And the whole idea of low effort, it's just easy to run and operate. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Read Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Welcome, Closers. Today we have another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast, but this one is live with the world's first guest at the International Lead Simple Headquarters, Steve Crossland. Thanks for coming on again, man. Thanks. Yeah, so this is fun. This is the first live video interview that we've done. We talked not that long ago. I want to say it was within the last like 90 days or so. Yeah. And uh, here we are again. So you were like the poster child for representing the story and the narrative around having a small, profitable shop, not guilt tripping yourself about not managing 10,000 doors, being happy, having a lifestyle you like that works for you. And at the end of the day, knowing that you're making some money at a smaller scale. I love that. We're back at the table. Um, Steve, we've had some kind of conversations since that initial interview. What's new or what's shifted in your thinking this year around the business, finance, and kind of how you think about your operation? Um, I really, I think about it the same that I always have. I'm just becoming a little bit more tuned into the numbers. Uh, the big, biggest shift for me is this idea, like when I would talk about profit or how much profit you can make in a business, I always just thought of it in terms of if I was going to sell my company to you, I'm trying to show you on paper, like what the comp- what the business will produce that'll be your money that you can do with whatever you want, that you can pay yourself a salary or you can take it as an owner draw. I lumped that whole amount or what they would call seller's discretionary right. income. If you were selling your business, I always lumped that whole amount in, in my mind and called it profit. Um, my shift for going forward is that I'm just going to start paying myself a market salary. I've always paid myself a salary, but I just paid myself probably below a market salary, but high enough for, you know, if the IRS audited me, um, you know, it's like 50,000 a year that I could say, well, I could hire somebody and that's about what I would pay them maybe. Um, but I think it's a little low. So I saw your chart that said, you know, kind of broke it down based on, gross revenue that a company produces and I probably will raise that up to 80 or a hundred thousand. And then what's left over after I pay myself that start calling that the profit percentage. Um, so that if I did have to hire somebody to completely replace me, then I know that that's the amount of money I would have to live on if I wanted to just let somebody else run it and uh, go off and do whatever I want to do, go travel or, or whatever. So this is an interesting point because a lot of folks wouldn't agree. A lot of folks would say, no, you need to try and beat the tax man, pay yourself as little <clears throat> as possible. There are a lot of games you can play to try and optimize for taxes. But what I learned, and really this is a Greg Crabtree thing that he really ingrained in me, is that the penalty that you pay for playing those games is a lack of financial clarity. And that long term, the most determinative thing for the profit outcome is your financial clarity within your own business, yeah. knowing your numbers. Talk to me about the numbers that you're paying attention to right now as 2018 kind of comes to a close to have like a, a retrospective view of what, of the performance of the year. What are you looking at to assess yeah, success? Um, you know, it's funny. I'm kind of ending the year breaking some of my own rules. I have a long time uh, prospective client that I've known for 25 years uh, since 1991 in Austin, an older uh, 
older property owner that owns a lot of like small properties in Travis Heights. And um, his wife recently passed away and he's 79. He doesn't know anything about the books. So they've got like 15 units. None of those I would take like alone if it was just one owner that owned this little duplex uh, or this small house, I wouldn't take those. But as a bundle of properties, um, and also kind of a little bit of a white knight thing where I'm coming in and kind of figuring it all out, getting all the tenants paying. I, I just got all the rents coming in on, on, uh, in December. So I've done what I've told people not to do, <laughs> which is I took a bunch of properties that are kind of low end. They're, uh, they're rough, they're older, they have high maintenance. They're basically C properties. They don't rent, the gross rents are below my average, and um, but they're all bundled together in one block. So it's kind of like a multi-unit multi apartment in a way, except they're all, it's like eight of them and they're duplexes, a few houses, a fourplex. Um, also, I've taken one from a former client whose home I managed up in up near the domain in Austin um, she bought a house down in Kyle which is uh, a little further south than I want to go but I managed her house for seven years and then I sold it this year she was a great client and so when she asked me to manage this one normally I'd say well it's too far away um, but I went ahead and took it and now I'm getting ready <laughs> Getting ready to take another one that uh, one of my very best friends owns. He bought the house right next to him and rehabbed it. And um, so it's real nice. It's an A property. But we had to have a long conversation about the dynamic of living right next door to the property that you mm, own. Yeah. And that you have to pretend you don't see it. You don't know anything <laughs> about it. If the tenant comes over and asks you anything, yeah. if they know you're the owner, then you say that I hired Steve to do that. Yeah. Um, call Steve. Boundaries. Um, yeah, so maybe they want to adopt a, a, a Rottweiler puppy, and I tell them no. Um, then they're going to walk next door and ask the owner. He right. needs to know to tell them no. Right. So it's kind of funny. I'm ending the year um, sort of breaking some of my own rules. A little more flex here. Some of these, I don't know what, what that's about. I don't really need the accounts, but it just kind of felt right to take these. Um, yeah. Um, mainly for loyalty to a past client, trying to help somebody out, which, which I can afford to do and I think all of us can to some degree. Mm -hmm. You just don't want an entire portfolio of people that you're trying to help out um, that doesn't really fit. So we'll see how that pans out next year. Yeah, and you got a course correct, right? So with any yeah. of the three yeah. of these, if it yeah. turns into a dumpster fire, yeah. you still got to have the backbone to, yeah. to cut ship. With the, the <clears throat> larger portfolio of properties in... Um, I think you said it was 14 units. Yep, What's the 15. class of the owner? Is that an owner that's been good to work with thus far? No, um, he's been okay. But we had uh, I'm moving a I'm moving somebody into one of the units on Friday um, that I just got rented, and it turns out all the all the galvanized uh, pipe and uh, sewer lines are bad, so we're having to replace the sewer line. We have a big ordeal, and he came walking over. He lives there. Um, to see what's going on and I said well I'm gonna have to replace all this and we're getting it done and I'm gonna move the ten tenant in and had to remind him that you know I I've got this you're not involved just let me handle it and it went okay but um, I think it'll t be a little bit of training and um, it's interesting for me because I get to experience a little bit of what it's like for other property managers who take um, clients and properties that they haven't been as picky about 
And normally, it's, for me, it's just a, what I call the Honda Accord of houses. Mm. It's a single-family home. It's an absentee owner out of state. Um, there's not a whole lot of work to do on it. And so I'm getting to experience what it's like to onboard some B and C properties that normally I don't do. Um, so that's kind of interesting to me. And I think it'll help me have a better perspective and understand what other property managers yeah. are going through yeah. who actually are top, top weighted right. or maybe a little too heavily weighted in that kind of a property. So it is a little bit of extra work, but I think it's all manageable and it's all doable. It's um, really just a matter of communicating setting and holding boundaries. And the interesting thing is I thought I was going to wrap up this year, uh, having dropped down to about 92 or 90 doors because I sold more than I normally would this year mm -hmm. out of the portfolio. But now I'm ending the year like at 106 or 107 doors. So I'm above my hundred cap and I had to actually call in to promise and get my license increased to, uh, uh to go over a hundred <laughs> because normally I just don't go over a hundred say that's it I don't have any room in the software for another property so I'm, I'm not taking anything and that that capped me but now I'm I'm up over that that's so. funny so that's where the hundred dollars limit came from was a software license <laughs> yeah, okay yeah. yeah good to know that's cool so I saw that you recently started the hundred door club that was really cool we went out to lunch not that long ago yeah and you yeah, kind of put the thanks. idea out there and then like a couple hours later you had just like done it yeah and then, I was just thinking about and it and then a couple of days later there was like a, a couple hundred members which yeah. is pretty yeah, we got about 223 now. What's interesting to me, I've never moderated a Facebook group or done anything like that before. I've, I've managed listservs before, mm -hmm. right. but um, I've probably declined more uh, join requests than I've approved. Mm -hmm. um, it says real clearly, this is for an owner operator of a 50 to 200 door property management company. Mm -hmm. And it's for the owner operator working in the business, uh, in their business. Um, and so if you fit that criteria, join. Um, had a whole lot of people want to join that did not fit the criteria or that have zero doors or that have 800 doors. Or they don't answer any questions. They don't answer any questions. I don't know who they are. Some of them that didn't answer any questions, I know who they are and I could go back, go back and, and find out and, and then go ahead and approve them. But um, that's been real interesting to me. The reason I want to keep it contained and limited to just owner operators who are working in the small business is so that when we do a poll or we um, are asking each other questions, that those answers are in the context of somebody doing it. It's not, you know, uh, not that not that everyone's opinion isn't valuable, but there's other groups that have thousands of members, so you can go crowdsource your big generic general property management questions there. But here it's really asking other owner operators. It'd be kind of like if you were in an RV club and, and you pulled a fifth wheel, you know, with a, a big, you know, Ford F-150 truck. Maybe you want to talk to other people that pull a fifth wheel with a big Ford uh, F-250 or whatever it would be, 350 to pull that kind of trailer. Maybe you don't mind talking to people that camp in tents or that drive a, an RV or a little Volkswagen camper van, but maybe you would like to have a more focused group that mm -hmm. does exactly what you do. Right. So that's what I'm really trying to create 
with that group. So what's interesting is when you plant a flag like that, when you plant a flag in the ground, there's a couple of things that happen. Number one, it's a dog whistle for the folks that really self-identify. Mm -hmm. You gotta create some boundaries like you're doing, and the creating the boundaries really focuses the energy for the folks that do meet that criteria. But then you also have to get clear on focusing on the nuance of what the group is and is not for, because there are gonna yeah. be some folks that are like, hey, small is it, small is the be all end all, and there's some more nuance. I believe the specific tagline is something along the lines of a small, profitable, property management company that enables the lifestyle goals and aspirations that yeah. you have. So it's not just about being small, right? Well, it's how to operate a, a low effort, high profit, small property right. management right. company. Um, I took the title right from a, uh, one of the presentations I do. And it could be for somebody, and I do have some people in there that are like at 38 or 45 that want to grow up into that size, but it could also be for somebody that is at 250, 300 that wants to shrink down into right, that size right, right. redefine their company maybe tighten up the ship so it's really an ideological thing the door count I'm, I'm not super strict on it you know if somebody says they have 42 doors and they want to come in then we'll let them in or if they say they're at 250 and they want to shrink down then we can let them in but i think that um really the idea is how do we optimize this because we've all chosen we've all chosen it as a model so um, that's what I'm thinking. I, I haven't really fully figured it out yet, or I don't really know where it's going. It's turned out to be a lot more time consuming and a lot more work than I thought. Um, just moderating the back end and deleting people post fees that they're charging and I'll go in and delete that and say, you know, we can't do that. We're not gonna share the amounts we're charging and, and invite scrutiny from, you know, whoever. You're just not supposed to do it, you know, so. Um, I have myself a little project now. Eventually, once I get it kind of tuned up and running well, I'll get somebody else to help me admin it and nice. maybe get a few more admins in there. Nice. So the topic of profit has some implicit assumptions, one of which is that we can measure profit, right? Like yeah. you would assume yeah. that measuring profit would be kind of the, the baseline fundamental of actually having a constructive conversation about it. A lot of folks, you asked me this when we were talking before the show, you asked me the question, when I interact with folks, what's kind of the baseline of, of how knowledgeable people are about their numbers? And I would say that most folks I talk to don't track their revenue per door or their profit per door. And if they do track their overall uh, profit margin, it's not adjusted for the variables that we like to adjust for, which is basically that standardized compensation model that's an owner, yeah. a, a market-based wage. Yeah. So that's kind of the answer to that question. These numbers though, particularly the revenue per unit and the profit per unit, are not really complicated metrics, right? I mean, it's pretty straightforward. No, they're not. So for you, ending the year right now, are you focused on kind of getting clarity on these numbers for yourself for 2018 for what well, the year look like? Well, I'd like to because if, if, if NAR, and I know you guys are working on the NARPM accounting standard, and if we can get everybody to speak uh, uh, the same language, then I want to know, you know, what my numbers are in that language. So that when we're talking about, you know, total profit versus gross profit, what's your labor efficiency, all of those different measures you have, that we all have a, a common way to go figure it out and see where we're at. Um, in the end, I don't think that you really have to know a whole lot more than your basic numbers. I mean, you could know that you want to have your portfolio produce an average of, you know, 2000 to 3000 a year gross revenue per door. Um, whether all that comes from, you know, 
no matter how that composition of that is, for some, half of that might be management fee and the other half maintenance or other add-on fees. For some, 80% of it may be management fees if they're in a higher rent market. But just to know that basic goal, you know, the target you're shooting for, and then to know that I'm not going to take any new properties, you know, unless I have a really good reason to do it, like we talked about <laughs> earlier, I'm not going to take any properties that pull me down in the other direction just for the sake of growing. Yeah, and we've talked about the kind of perverse correlation between yeah. lower income properties actually yeah. being more time and hassle. That obviously doesn't work. Yeah. That's kind of the, the non-correlation mm -hmm. relationship that you want. But what we tend to notice is that across the board, when you're clear on what your cost to manage is, right? Like mm -hmm. you look at your costs, you divide that by the number of units that you have, that's your cost to manage. Yep. You don't wanna be taking on new properties that are below your cost to manage because otherwise yeah. you're effectively paying money to manage that unit. And that happens from time to time. I think yeah. for every business that's a recurring model with individual clients, you're gonna accrue some some croft, some barnacles that kind of have to be sloughed off. I don't know what it is for you, but for most of our clients, we see it, but at least on an annual basis, it's worth really going through and doing that portfolio analysis, mm -hmm. basically where you're ranking your properties by revenue per unit, and mm -hmm. then you're cross comparing that by talking to your staff and overlaying effort. This guy's a pain in the rear, this property is a real, um, a real dog in the portfolio. And that kind of zones you in on that bottom 10%, bottom 20%, whatever yeah. it is that's worth creating room on the top side. Because implicit in the model of what you're going for is some level of preference to not manage a big team. And if you don't want yeah. to manage a lot of people, you are the constraint. Your time is the constraint. Mm -hmm. Every time that you say yes to one thing, you're saying no to another. I mean, fair yeah. to say that's really implicit in what you're doing here? Yeah, I mean, the whole idea of low effort and is that it's just easy to run and operate. What's interesting to me in reading the answers that people gave in their questions when they joined the group is, you know, we've got some companies that are maybe 150, 180 doors, and they have four or five full-time employees, um, you know, working in the business. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. you know, the old NARPM ratio that I've heard even since the 90s is you need one full-time person for about every 50 to 75 doors. Um, solo operators can really do way better than that. We can run 100 pretty easy on our own if we're systemized and we're streamlined and we're operating with a high level of authority and decision-making power. But it's interesting to me to see that people would have 180 doors and five full-time employees. I, I really don't, I don't understand that. I don't fault them. There may be a reason sure. for it, but it seems like a lot of effort going into that number of doors. We had someone post on the group that was, and this is a common thing, well, you'll see people that feel maxed out or like, like they're pulling their hair well, out. 70 hours, they, 80 hours. They're at 50 doors yeah. and they're like maxed out and think they need to hire somebody. Yeah. And I think, ah, you're, you're trying to solve the wrong problem. You're trying, to, um, you're, you're trying to increase your operational capacity by hiring when really you should increase it by figuring out what, what's causing all the effort. You know, why, why do I, why do you have that much effort with 50 doors and you're just one person, um, you know, figure that out. I think the biggest profit killer in the business is really in the effort. So people think they're going to become more profitable by growing when really they could become more profitable by just tuning things up and uh, figuring out why are they working so hard, um, on a per door basis um, to manage what they have. 
This is a great point. I, I mean, this this is this really easy to overlook, and this is really easy to kind of pigeonhole your whole message around. Well, that works great for you, Steve, but you don't understand my circumstances. You don't understand my owners. You don't understand the properties that I'm managing. We talked about it the last time, but let's just lean in again. Like, what are you doing that puts you in a position to not work like a dog to manage these properties in your portfolio? Well. You know, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, and I would just say that property management is not a collaborative project. It's not a collaboration project with your owner. It's an assignment. It's uh, the uh, taking an assignment. Agency. I've, I've accepted a fiduciary role. There you go. Um, someone has appointed me, mm -hmm. uh, the broker, agent, to operate on their behalf and make decisions on their behalf. So what I don't have happening in my business that a lot of people do is a lot of communication and collaborating with the owner. And there are genuine strong feelings um, amongst property managers that, that say, well, good communication is good service. Um, I'm going to let my owner know when something's happening at their property. It's their property. They should mm. know about mm. it. I'm going to keep them updated as to what we're doing about it and the progress that we're making to solve the problem. And I just don't understand why anyone thinks that's needed. Um, they didn't hire me to to involve them and do that. They hired me to just take care of it for them. Um, mm -hmm. So I think a lot of property managers have the mindset that their role is really to assist the property owner mm. in a mm. subordinate role mm. to, to almost like an employee or somebody to, to do things that need to be done and keep them updated and involve them when really um, no involvement by the owner is really needed. So for example with my owner on the um, uh, sewer lines he, he asked are you going to keep me updated and I, I said no I'll, let, I'll just let you know how it all turns out. That's a very simple little decision on my part and it just mm -hmm. comes out of me automatically. I don't mm -hmm. think about it but I'm saying no I will let you know the final outcome mm -hmm. but there's not going to be updates and little communications uh, ongoing. It's a big mess over there. I mean, it's a big job. So we'll get it all straightened out and fixed. But in the end, I'll have a final conclusion to talk about, not an ongoing thing. I think, and I, I don't know why, but I think that's hard. I think that's hard for some property managers to really think that way as a fiduciary uh, instead of a, a a functionary. This is such a rich topic. This is really the question of is property management a vocation? Is it a gen genuine profession? Mm -hmm. Is there how much wisdom and judgment is there associated with what you do as opposed to your glorified gopher, right? I yeah. mean, if you're if you're just a glorified gopher and you're just facilitating, you know, if you're like TaskRabbit or Uber for property management, then yeah, get involved. You yeah. just you just brought up a situation in the sewer line. If the guy, if the client you were just referencing was really going to add a lot of value in that ordeal, then maybe he should be involved. But if he's yeah. not, and it's just updates for the sake of updates, yeah. and you're truly the professional that really doesn't need any involvement, that that's it's really the nuance of perspective in that yeah. matter that I think drives yeah. the difference. Yeah. It's funny to me um, that you would take an owner, let's say somebody owns their house in South Austin and they're a tech worker and they get a new job in California or Washington and they're gonna transfer and go um, take a career jump and move. Um, they wanna keep their home because in case they move back to Austin, they don't wanna pay today's prices or 
future prices for this right, home right. that they already own that they right. bought 10, 20 years ago. They just want to retain it. But they have no knowledge at all about how to be a landlord. They're vaguely familiar that you rent it and you put a tenant in there. But they're not knowledgeable about all the nuances, all of the exposure to different things that can happen. So they hire me. Um, so me, as a property manager, why would I include um, an untrained, unknowledgeable person who knows nothing at all about making decisions and being a good landlord? Why would I make them my primary consultant in everything I do in the business? Mm -hmm. And that's what a lot of property managers do mm -hmm. because, well, they own the property. Yeah, so what if they own it? They hired you exactly. to yeah. manage it. Just because they own it doesn't mean they are the, like that they have to rubber stamp everything you do. You can get all that approval up front in the management agreement mm -hmm. and just say, here's the scope of authority you're assigning to me. And this is the scope of authority I'm going to operate within. I will let you know if something goes outside that scope, but otherwise I'm making all these decisions on your behalf and we're going to try to create really good outcomes for you. Um, the other thing that's interesting to me is how many people are in this business to dabble uh, or just getting started. And so you'll see some of the bigger forums where somebody will post, Hey, I'm still, I'm just getting started with my company and like there's zero doors. Mm -hmm. What software do y'all use? Um, and this or that, and, and they're just crowdsourcing their entire business. And it's all, you get the feeling like they haven't really sat down and thought about like, how, how am I going to be a good property manager? Which is really instructive because it speaks you know? to the bar within this industry. Yeah. Property management really is the wild west in many ways. Yeah. There also, a lot of people have a hard time, a lot of property managers, just breaking things down into a binary choice or decision. So they'll post a big story, um, paragraphs of story what would you about do? a tenant with a what would you do? And then I'll read the whole story and I'll think, well, you have a tenant who hasn't paid rent. Um, that's it. That's the whole story boils down to follow up with what does your, what, what does your policy and procedures say when you have a tenant that doesn't pay rent? The story doesn't matter. It's completely irrelevant. So you have to also have, not to be a heartless person or a person without compassion, but you do have to have the ability to separate the story from the actual next step that needs to happen and then execute that next step and just do it. A lot of property managers, it seems like have a hard time doing that because they're letting their feelings and their compassion and involving the owner and, or, or they're getting owner directed and the owner is telling them, well, just let them stay in there for another month and let's just see how it goes. Well, now you're letting your owner run your business mm -hmm. for you instead of doing what your lease said or what your property management agreement said you would do. Mm -hmm. So I'm really trying to be a champion and an advocate for the idea that if you operate with high authority and low owner involvement and a real competent, clear, sense of what you do in every situation before it happens, that you can be a really low effort, high profit property manager because you're not using all that energy and effort to figure out what to do. So I think what gets lost in this conversation, Steve, is that some people hear that and they think they view that as like a little tactic, a little thing that you're going to do. And that's one way to view it. That, that would be more like a fake it till you make it. What I hear you saying is that this is the fruit of having the moral authority that comes from the knowledge and the expertise and the ability. And it stems from that. So if you're new in the business and you don't really know what you're doing, it's, it's a really different 
conversation about how somebody approaches that mm -hmm. as opposed to somebody that's old hand they've been doing this yeah. for 30 plus years so it's really yeah. it is a mindset that is derivative of your ability not purely just a decision that you're making yeah fair yeah but even a newbie who doesn't know anything if they know what questions to ask and when to ask them and they know how to build relationships and have a network um, they can operate just as if they knew everything I mean, Article 11 in our Realtor Code of Ethics talks about competency. And so I'm not competent to, for example, go sell ranch land or to sell a commercial high rise downtown unless I've enlisted the direct help and supervision of someone who is. So when I came into NARPM in 1996, I was just winging it. I didn't know anything about property management. But I started to have relationships with other property managers and go to the meetings. And when I ran and in, got into a jam, I would just call one of them and say, hey, here's what's happening. Here's what I think I should do. Is that what you would do? And they would say, yeah, that, that's exactly what I would do. Mm -hmm. So you can kind of start to build your muscles, your, your operational muscles and expertise by just thinking, what, what would somebody who really knows what they're doing do? And then check it out with someone. Have a mentor or have a uh, NARPM group or a local, local list serve that you can just ask questions to. I, I'm really discouraged by the number of what would you do questions that come across the list serves and the Facebook groups that are just fundamental, basic, common sense yeah. things. And I, I feel really, I don't, I don't know what to think about that. Like, I wonder if they really should be in the business if they can't kind of think beyond that. Um, basic question of what would you do when it's a simple fundamental thing like what to do if your tenant doesn't pay rent I mean those are some of the questions we get right mm -hmm. yeah you see them too yeah it's interesting to see that that dialogue again to me it just it really speaks to the quality bar in the industry and the fact that you know those types of questions don't get asked in banking if you start a new bank and you're brand new you're the newest bank on the block there's a lot of you're not asking those types of questions because yeah. it's a highly regulated industry property right. management by contrast is not so let's talk a little bit about positioning with potential owners and clients when somebody calls you how would they be able to be clear on the fact that you're any different than the next guy that that just started six months ago but somehow has you know 50 or 60 doors um, so what dif differentiates one property manager from another? I, I mean, I sell the fact that I'm small. I'm the one you'll be talking to if we ever do need to talk. Um, I'm handling everything. I know what's going on. You're not going to go through a division or a phone tree of different employees because they have the bookkeeper, they have the maintenance coordinator, they have the leasing agent, they have the portfolio manager, and nobody really knows everything in these bigger companies um, unless they figured out their internal communication um, with tools or, or something. But that's the complaint I get from owners that have come to me from bigger companies is uh, there was a lot of turnover. They never knew who they were supposed to talk to, and they never really knew what was going on. With me, they just call me, and I know what happened. Um, when I send my owner statements out each month, um, I have about 75 owners, I think. Um, it, I get zero to three that'll email back a, a question about something on their statement. Um, 
I know the answer. I just, oh, I know what, what happened with that plumbing thing. You know, I know the answer and I just send them a quick little email and that's the end of that. You know, um, in a bigger company, I think you're not going to get that level of service. So what they get is you get just a property manager taking care of the property for you versus hiring a company to do it for you. And that property management owner is really managing the people in that company, not your property. So, um, that's how I, that's how I put it. And, you know, some people, if they want a, um, you know, they want to be able to call in and have a receptionist answer the phone during business hours and transfer them to their property manager. If they feel good in that kind of a doing business with that kind of company, they should hire that kind of company. Um, I'm not always going to answer the phone. It may be tomorrow when I call you back. Um, but that's okay. There's nothing that's really that urgent um, in my mind. The other thing that would differentiate me is I would just tell them how I handle things. You know, I've been doing this a long time. I have the MPM designation from NARPM. When a problem comes up at the property, I've been there, I've done that. I know what's going to happen. Um, I'll make the decision and just take care of it. I'm not going to spend a lot, of, a lot of time letting it turn into a big ordeal. Got it. So part of what I hear you saying is that you're just choosing to sell something different. You're selling the high authority situation. For the yeah. person that, that is really clear, this would be like me, man. If I'm in the market for hiring a property manager, as with any professional service that I am buying, my temperament, it's not like other people, it's not right or wrong, but my temperament yeah. is I want the outcome. I'm the yeah. guy that buys the drill for the hole, and I'm actually not going to buy the drill because I just wanted the hole and be easier to have somebody else yeah. drill the hole than me. So the qualification criteria, getting clear on the perfect owner that you're looking for, it sounds like what you're doing is you basically, you have this kind of dog whistle in place and you're knowingly excluding a whole subset of the market that wants to be highly involved. And by doing so, you're doing a much better job of attracting the people that really want that hands-free experience. Well, but do they want to be highly involved? I mean, most of the owners that hire a property management company to manage a single family home, unless they're a professional investor, have never owned a rental property before. They don't really know what they want. They just know that they're, they know that they want a property manager but they don't really know what kind of property manager they want. They don't know what to expect. And so this is one thing I've said over and over, over the years. I think a lot of property managers who complain about their owners have turned them into the kind of owner they complain about by over-involving them and over-communicating with yes. them. Whereas if that yes. owner had come along and found me and I would have, you know, just said my script, you know, how I run it, and then I say, "Sounds does that sound good? And they say, yes, that sounds like exactly what I want. The script being, you're not going to hear from me. I'm going to take care of everything for you. It's a turnkey service. If, if you do hear from me, it's probably bad news. And I'm calling you to tell you I need you to send me money. But I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of your tenant. I'm going to protect your asset by doing re repairs quickly and professionally. Does that sound like what you want? And they say, yeah, that's exactly what I want. That same owner could have gone over to another company who uses the software that pings and dings them and basically tweets the life of the party and or the life of the property and every time a repair happens. That's one of the things I noticed in Buildium in the back end. You can check a little box there that'll notify the owner when a work order is created or when an invoice is put in. I think Propertyware does it too. And I look at that in the back end of that software and I think, why on earth would anyone 
want to know, want their owners to know this. I just don't get it. Why is it important? I know that they think it's good communication and just keeping the owner informed, but to what end? Like why? What problem is that real? What problem does that really solve? It just creates a lot of communication and creates more effort. So you're basically, when you check that box, it, that box to me, the way I see it, should just say, would you like your the profitability of your company to decrease? If so, click this box so that we can notify your owners, every one of them, every single time your property has a work order or a repair or it has an invoice. Click this box so that you can make lower profit because you're going to have all this extra communication to deal with. I would say that I am a fan of setting expectations, transparency, communication. I think the differentiation here, Steve, is at what point do you start the dialogue? If you start the conversation by letting them know that there was a work order, then I think you need to be faithful and litigious about communicating all the way through. If you start the communication at the end and saying this is what was done, that's a different sort of situation. And your your own your relationship that you set with your owners on the front side really determines which of those two approaches yeah. you take. I guess it's set in the FAQ on our website where I just kind of lay out the questions and answers that I think a property owner should ask a property management company. And then we give our answers. And then when I do the initial consultation and I have scripts, you know, and I my one of my scripts is there's a whole spectrum of property management companies you can hire. Some are very high communication and they keep you updated and aware of everything going on with your property. And, and that's okay. You may want that level of communication. I'm way, way over on the far other end of that spectrum where I'm not really going to let you know anything that's going on because I feel like you're hiring me to handle it. Um, and then I'll give some examples. You know, for example, if the tenant reports water leaking from the bottom of your dishwasher, I'm going to send a guy out there. We're going to fix it. You'll find out about it when you get your monthly owner statement and you see it right there on the statement. If it's something bigger or, um, you know, bigger in scope than that, like an air conditioner broke down and we had to replace it, then I, I will have already let you know what we did, why we did it before you got your owner statement but we are gonna go ahead and handle it and not pester you or bother you. And I use those specific words, pester and bother. Mm -hmm. We're not gonna pester and bother you and slow the process down so that we give worse service to the tenant um, by asking you what to do or, or you know, bothering you with little updates. And then as I go through that dialogue, I'll just say, does that sound good? Does that sound like the kind of service you want? Most people say, yeah, that's exactly what I want. So we've set the expectation and then it's backed up in the management agreement. And I don't think it's enough to just put it in the management agreement. I think that you have to have that dialogue up front. So the companies that have a business development person or whoever's out there selling the account, they really need to sell it that way so that it matches what's written in the management agreement. That way, if an owner gives pushback, maybe they forgot the conversation five years later. But you say, well, no, that's all outlined in the management agreement. These things are excluded from our repair cap, air conditioning, mm -hmm. heat, water mm -hmm. heater, roof leaks, or anything um, that's urgent and not no option at broker's sole discretion, at broker's sole discretion. So I make that decision and they're agreeing to it up front.
It, so now you're starting to speak to the whole scope of services conversation. Mm -hmm. Scope of services basically just defining for property management, which mm -hmm. by definition is kind of a vague, nebulous service. Mm -hmm. What am I get? What does full service property management offer? Getting really clear on the front side, mm -hmm. and not just I don't want to use the word hiding, but not just tucking away and saying referring to it later, knowing it's in the mm -hmm. contract, but being upfront on the front side, mm -hmm. really setting expectations mm -hmm. so that. On the day that you get that call and you get asked to do the thing that you don't want to do, if you say yes, you've already defined what that's going to cost. Mm -hmm. I don't want to do this, and therefore, you know what? I'm willing to, but there's an exorbitant fee associated yeah. with it because I really, I don't. This is a bumper lane to prevent the relationship yeah. from going in this direction. Yeah. Well, I just did it the same way for everybody because that is where you get your uniformity of operation, and that's where you get your decreased effort. So I don't have to think, is there a certain way or I need to communicate or a certain vendor I have to use on this property versus that property. We don't have any home warranties. So they either want just the monolithic one way that I do it or they don't. No home warranties. You, you got to tell me. No home that. warranties. You just policy. You're just not even going to mess with, not even going to no, go there. At all. They're, wow. Do you get pushback well, on this? Of, no, a lot of property managers don't do that anymore. It's a horrible way to run a, a rental property. If you're a homeowner and you live in the property, maybe a home warranty can protect you from a big you know, expense. And every buyer in Texas gets one with the property when they purchase it. They're built into the boilerplate of the one to four family residential contract. So what that's caused is a lot of investors that buy a house, they have this home warranty for the first year that their seller paid for. And they'll call me and say, well, um, yeah, I'm looking for a property manager. We just bought this house and it has the home warranty. Will you use it? And I just say, no, we won't use it. Why not? Um, I don't know who they're sending to the property. I don't know how long it's going to take. Um, the way we handle maintenance above and beyond anything else is how our tenants rate us. Um, if they've moved in and paid their rent on time and never have a problem with the property, we haven't had any interaction or anything for them to grade or rate us on or have an opinion about. But when something breaks and needs to be fixed, especially an air conditioner, um, the difference between getting somebody out the same day and having it fixed or getting them out the same or the next day and getting it fixed really quickly, even if it needs a new part, and sending a home warranty company that could take a week or 10 days, it's just not a level of service that we're willing to allow to have happen on a property that we manage. Um, that causes tenant frustration. It causes a lot of extra communication. Um, it just doesn't fit into the program. That said, if I was going to do it, I would do it for all of my properties and I would encourage all of my owners to have a home warranty so that I could create a uniformity of operation sure. and have enough of it happening so yeah. that I could have relationships with those vendors yeah. and maybe try to optimize it to the degree possible. But a lot of them, when they get out there and they call the air conditioner a goner, 26 year old system, the coil is leaking, it's not replaceable. The whole system just needs to be replaced. Um, a lot of the home warranty companies make you get a second opinion. So they send another company out there. There's more delay. You throw in a weekend, the tenants are calling, trying to find out what's going on. You don't know because you don't really have a relationship with them. What a horrible way to run a business. You've got the most important aspect of the service component of your operation 
in the hands of an unknown third party unknown who really internet. doesn't care about you or your tenant. They care about just getting it fixed if they can for the cheapest amount of money, no matter how long it takes and how long the tenant has to wait. I just, I just, you know, quit using them back in the nineties when a tenant had to wait 10 days on an air conditioning repair. That was, that was the end of that. <laughs> in Texas. All right. So Dr. No, what else do you say no to man? Give me, give me some more practical concrete examples of where it's just a very simple, um, just, no, I won't do that. You know, I mean, they can be anything from little mundane things, but a tenant uh, owner called me once and said they wanted to plant some trees in the backyard of their house. And I just said, no. And he said, no. And I said, no. He said, why not? I said, well, they'd have to be watered regularly. We'd have to involve the tenant in that. They don't really solve any problem on the property. He said, well, yeah, I agree. My wife wanted me to do it, so I just thought I'd ask, but I'll tell her we're not doing it. I said, okay, there, I'm all done, right? How much effort was that? Um, I think a lot of other property managers would have gone ahead and, and had a discussion about it and maybe created work for themselves. And then what if the tree dies after three months because the tenant didn't water it? So that's an example of, of if you really break down that example, what I just said, it's like, okay, Someone wants to introduce a variable mm -hmm. into my operation mm -hmm. that I'm not going to be able to control. Um, it's going to create a lot of discussion, a lot of conversation, and I'm going to be, in the end, ultimately responsible for it. Do I, is that required? Is it a must-do thing? And the answer is no. So you just say, no, I'm not going to do that. I mean, Will you send me my money early? No. Can I do short-term rentals? Um, I don't do short-term rentals. So no. No. No, just pick what you want to do, pick what you want to optimize to be really good at, and then just do that and say no to everything else. Mm -hmm. I, I, don't, I mean, that's the way I look at it. So we have examples in other industries where you have um, mechanics that just work on Volkswagens or that only work on Audis. That's what I've used. I had my Saab guy for years. He was what, great. Why does the Saab guy say no to the Mercedes? Well, he has a uniformity of operation. He knows the parts, he knows the deal, because he's got a homogenous set of work product. Right. When you have houses that are basically the Honda Accord of rental property, you have a homogenous set of properties to deal with. They all have similar ACs, water heaters. Mm. You know, you're getting a homogenous set of tenants. Um, they're all easy to drive up to and park in front of for the right. uh, vendor to go in and do a repair. You don't have anything behind gated, you know, condos or downtown high rises where there really is nowhere to park. And it's really hard to get in and out of those buildings. So to me, it's all about just keeping it simple and keeping the main thing, the main thing. And the main, <laughs> the main thing is if I'm going to ask myself as a business owner, just like I would ask myself if I was going to start a mechanic company from scratch. I would do a little research and say, what are the easiest cars to work on? What are the most commonly owned cars? Um, you know, and I would pick, and maybe I would be a Saab mechanic or a Volkswagen mechanic or Jeep mechanic, but I wouldn't be a generalist and I wouldn't do everything because just the idea that to me seems like it would be really hard. The mechanics you would have to hire that know all these different kinds of vehicles, that would be frustrating for them. So, this idea of creating a narrow scope and sticking to it isn't new. I mean, I didn't invent this. 
it's not new to property management. It, you can see it in a lot of industries. Yeah, but you know there's somebody that's watching this right now that's thinking, well, that's great for you, Steve, but I'm not there yet. I was interviewing Jay Papasan yesterday, yeah. and this came up, and yeah. the, the uh, he basically said, you know, people ask me, did you get to where you're at now as a result of this, or are you just at where you're at now and therefore you can leverage these strategies and focus on yeah. your one thing? Good for you, but what about for the rest of us? So there's really that, that question of, of chicken and egg, and yeah. I know that you've done it the other way. Yeah. Back in the day. Yeah. So in light of the fact that, I mean, in some ways, somebody might be able to say, well, hey, you, you got to here by doing it the other way. How would you respond to that line um, of thinking? So, yeah, I started off making all the same mistakes everybody makes. I took anything and everything. I, I was cheap. I competed on price. And all I focused on was door count. And um, I think it was good for me to have gone through that and made those mistakes. I think the change... Um, or the difference with me and a lot of people I know in the business is I had my aha moment. I had my moment where I actually put everything in a spreadsheet and said, holy cow, I'm not making any money on all of these low-end fourplexes. I need to get rid of those and not take any more. And I started kind of tuning up the business and optimizing it to mainly end up just with single-family homes with a few exceptions but mainly just single family homes. And, um, but I learned it the hard way. If I was starting from scratch or if I was talking to somebody starting from scratch and they really need the income, um, you know, they have a drop dead date where they're gonna run out of savings or their, their buyout from their company they left is gonna run out and, and they really need to bootstrap this up. I would say, well, take what you need to take to get to your financial um, you know, cruising altitude Go ahead and do that, but do so with the idea that you're going to start optimizing later and you're going to make a shift. Go in eyes wide open. At some point, you know. So maybe to go back to the mechanic scenario, maybe you open up your mechanic shop and you, you know how to work on everything and you take anything. But eventually, as word of mouth grows, you start, you start narrowing that scope and optimizing, and then you decide you're only going to handle one kind of thing. Hmm. Okay. So... But I hear you, and this is great advice, I think just in general, always go in wide, eyes wide open. There's a difference yeah. between compromising versus knowingly make a decision yeah. that you understand is suboptimal, and you understand that there's a cost associated. You're creating yeah. some drag, you're creating yeah. some, uh, in software we call this technical debt. Sloppy, yeah. poor code, is it's technical debt. And yeah. you can go bankrupt with technical debt. Yeah. You can get to a point where just to course correct and to pay off that those those bills incrementally is going to break the bank and maybe yeah. you need to sell a portfolio and start over is that to some degree what what you did when you sold that first time um well i optimized it i took it from 240 down to 135 doors basically and then tuned it up and kind of swapped out some of those c unit houses and duplexes for a houses and then i just sold it and got out of the business and started a little telecom company um, doing hosted voicemail, hosted phone. I had a server. I put it in a data center here in Austin, and I went and started selling accounts. And I liked that business because it's like property management. You sell an account, and then you get paid monthly for the service. But Google Voice wasn't around yet back then. And, um, you know, ultimately it was, I mean, there's still businesses like that around, but, but, uh, ultimately, I decided to get out of that and just go back into investment sales. 
and did that at Keller Williams. And um, after about three years of that, started taking properties again. But I was able to build them from scratch, from zero. And I didn't need the income from those properties. I was just slowly going to build it up to about 50. And then it ended up like getting a little higher and a little higher and a little higher. But um, I was able to be super choosy and selective because I didn't, I didn't need my property management business at that time as I was growing it to produce income. So that's where I think it's different. And, and most of the properties I took were ones that I sold to investors. So I had already advised them on what would make a good rental property and what kind of house to buy. And then I would take it to manage. I do think it would be harder for somebody with a referral-based growth strategy or they're getting, let's say if I was getting referrals from realtors all over town and they're referring me all kinds of different properties and all different locations, I would have to figure out how am I going to say no to that gracefully. Um, and maybe, you know, that would be hard uh, versus somebody that maybe just mails postcards to one type of property to one or two zip codes and really just concentrates on that. And then, you know, every lead you get, from that marketing activity is going to be the owner of the kind of home you want to manage because you didn't mail your postcards to anybody else. Mm. So to me, if I was starting from scratch again, I would do targeted marketing like that to those kind of owners or limited to zip codes. It's really interesting what you just brought up. So what I, what I got out of what you just said was that if you're starting from scratch, the brokerage model, building the PM business up out of the brokerage mm -hmm. may be one of the most practical ways to do it. If you're really cash constrained, you got a small nut, you got to pay your bills, but your yeah. long-term goal is the recurring revenue yeah. property management, that probably is the most effective way to start yeah. as opposed to just being one of those folks that takes this position of, no, we want to be a PM only, so that way we can say we don't do brokerage and get the realtor referrals. That comes up from time to time. I'm sure, sure yeah, you've heard that logic I before. I don't get that. It's never been an issue. Maybe there are people that don't refer to me because they know I do sales, but I don't care. I mean, it's not stopping me from being at the size I want to be. And at. it's a meaningful part of your income. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Now, the other example would be like a stay-at-home mom. Maybe the kids get up to third or fifth. The littlest kid gets up to third or fifth grade and her husband is uh, working in a, you know, a, a white collar industry, sure. has a good salary, has benefits, but she just wants to do her, her own thing. And maybe she's been a realtor. Well, now she can start to grow a really curated portfolio of properties without the stress and burden of needing the income from it. So it can be grown in a way that is very mindful and purposeful versus somebody who's like, holy crap, I got laid off. I need to get a new gig and I need to get to cruising altitude on income really quick. That was my case the first time in. I mean, I had quit my job. I had enough money to live on for about a year and I needed to like I needed to go out and hustle and get my income back like because I had a little, two little babies at home. And um, so that's what I did the first time. And there are people like that and they should go out and hustle and get it and get to where you need to be. But once you get there, make a decision. How am I going to grow from here forward? And am I going to have a curated portfolio of uh, specific properties that I've decided I want to manage? Or am I just going to take anything and everything that comes along and all the effort and headache that comes with that. Mm -hmm. And you could, there are obviously a whole host of things you can do along the way as you're growing in that way. You can mm -hmm. still structure your lease the right way. You can still structure your PMA yep. the right way. You can still have the right vendor relationships, et yeah. cetera. You mentioned KW a second ago, so I got to yeah. ask. Yeah. We see, I, so it was really interesting. I interviewed 
Jay, and he was talking about how at uh, Keller Williams Corporate, there's a real sea change in the bodies and the right people and the right bosses. They're shifting from being a training organization to a tech company. He said there's been a ton of internal churn. Gary Keller is talking about how the future for KW is a tech company. Yeah. What we see is a great example of somebody that is really successful and has gotten to this point of prolific success and is now kind of betting the farm yeah. on a new unknown future. Yeah. You don't want to bet against Gary, but on the other hand, this is kind of a leap. You're here in Austin locally. What's your perspective and what they're doing as they talk about getting into property management and mortgage, et cetera? Yeah, um, I wouldn't bet against Gary either. And I have a little bit of visibility into some of the stuff they're doing. And it, it does look like they're, it's a big shift trying to turn into a software company to produce in-house the kind of software tools that will enable an agent so that you have a tech-enabled agent um, going out and able to le leverage that technology to be able to do the work without having to cobble together and buy all these third-party tools. I don't use any of the tools that Keller Williams provides. Frankly, there's so many different logins, and, and I don't even know what they all are. E-Edge, et cetera. It, it, and they're not really that good either. They're, and they'll admit that. I mean, I'm not... The old version. Nobody in there is going to come out and say, oh, Keller Williams offers the best suite of tech tools of any real estate company. But what I know from talking to other real estate companies is even the ones that are kind of um, up on the, the leading edge, EXP. you know, EXP, Realty Austin, they have good technology, but you will find agents in there who also don't understand it and get confused by it and don't think it's really that great. But that's what we all need to be doing in our industry, or we're going to be taken over by what Gary calls the the agent-enabled tech. The purple bricks, or the, red the, fin. The technology is really the thing doing the consumers, but yeah. you, you still need a flunky to go out and open a door uh, or do this. And we've relegated the um, realtor to just an order taker or somebody that doesn't really need to have. I, I don't think of the knowledgeable, experienced veteran realtor who really knows the nuances. I don't think that person will ever completely disappear, mm -hmm. but we are going to have commission compression. We are going to have uh, where maybe you need to do more deals to make the same amount of money. Um, who knows what's going to happen? That's why I like property management. Even though you see technology trying to get in and enable a do-it-yourself landlord, that's just a small, small fraction of the market. There's always going to be somebody, lots and lots of property owners who move or buy investment property and they want a human being to take care of that property for them. So I won't say that we're, we're tech proof or that we're, we can't ever be disrupted or displaced, but we're going to, we're a real hard industry to, to replace with tech alone. So we'll see how it goes. But uh, Gary is getting into property management software. Keller Williams has brought in, bought in to a software product they're not really sure what they're going to do with it. They're still working it out. And that's real interesting for me to see how Gary works. Um, when I went to a lab and asked about it, um, it's really more of a brainstorming session. I said, well, it doesn't really seem like you guys actually know for sure what you want to do with this or how you're going to do it. And Gary said that that's true, but I am going to do it. <laughs> and I thought, Okay, I get it. I get how his mind works. It's okay. It can be messy and, and the figuring it out part can be, you know, it can be what it is, but they're heading that direction and, they're, and I, I wouldn't bet against him. 
I really wouldn't. Yeah, well, it's going to be really interesting to see where that lands. I appreciate you coming on today. Yeah, Are you going to see yeah. PM Grow in April? Uh, PM Grow in April. Here locally, man. I, I, I guess so. I, ha I don't know. I haven't thought all the way to April yet. But sure, why not? PM Growth, man. Yeah. The, growth, the Growth Summit. We're going to be talking about growth. We're also going to be talking a little bit about profitability yeah. numbers. How, how is it different than a, like all the, uh, you know, we have all these property manager conferences yes. now. I've lost track mm. of which ones are which. Some have branding and names that are like they get confused with one another. Um, so it's kind of, it used to be Narcom was the only game in town. Yeah. So yeah. what differentiates PM Grow for the attendee that leaves that conference at the end? What will they say? Well, that was different. And this was way better than everything else I've been to. Why will they say that? Yeah, well, this is this is how you know the show is real, by the way, that uh, you're not just like pandering and saying get to, saying it's a slam dunk, you're going to be there. <laughs> well, why should I go? Yeah, great, great question, Steve. Um, you know, man, what I would say is that we're focused on growth primarily. Yeah. And yeah. we used to say we're not focused on operations at all. What I would say is we're focused on growth and we're focused on finance. Mm -hmm. What we're not focused on is talking about property management for the sake of property management. There will be zero conversations on how to facilitate a security de deposit disposition or service animals. It just ain't okay. gonna happen. But yeah. we do very much talk about operationalizing growth as another department within your organization, as another key core competence if you really want to grow. You can swipe the credit card and you can get the APM leads, that's one way to do it, but I think it's painful. I think what really matters if you want to go pro with growth is operationalizing that function within your business and treating it with equivalency to your other departments. The other half of the conversation is looking at finance though and just realizing this is one way to make money. There are a lot of other ways to make money. Yeah. When we go to an ARPM event, there's this kind of tribe brotherhood mentality, which is great, but we don't want to lose sight of the fact that this is just a way to make money. And if mm -hmm. it's not doing that, you can have the warm fuzzies, but personally, that's not what I'm about. I'm not yeah. about using altruism and a sense of belonging to gloss over the fact that you're not making any money. Profit is the reason that businesses exist. That serves the business owner and the consumer to have a healthy bottom line margin. So we focus on that as well. Last year, that's where we released the, the benchmarking study, which I know you've seen. And yeah. this year, we're going to go back and we're going to talk more about some finance data. We're going to dig into a little bit of, into some maintenance data and do some performance data around there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's what I would say. Focus on growth, focus on finance. Okay. So for the smaller guy like me and others like me that are happy being at 100 or 200 and don't really want to grow, should they come anyway? Man, that's a great question. If you have no aspirations for growth, I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe you think twice about it. If you're in a situation where let's say you're at 300 doors and you want to pare down, but you realize that you don't have a big enough nut within your portfolio to pare down to, mm -hmm. and you don't want to, and you don't want to fire your existing staff, there can be growth needed even in light of uh, a significant amount of churn, yeah. right? I mean, in your situation, it's not like you're not focused on growth. It's just that you're not focused on net growth. You're still yeah. adding units every you're still yeah. bringing in new units all the time because you, you're dealing with churn on an ongoing yeah, basis. Right. So yeah. I think that the thought process there for me would be if you want to learn about, if you want to thoughtfully consider operationalizing growth and from that position of knowledge and awareness, choose whether or not to grow or not to grow. And if you do choose to grow, know how to do so. And if you want to be more engaged in that financial conversation around viewing the business as a way to generate 
profit mm -hmm. for you, the business owner, for you, the, the equity holder, not just the yeah. operator. Yeah. We all think about the operator, yeah. but you're also that equity holder. And that mm -hmm. equity holder doesn't get a whole lot of airtime yeah. within the business as an as a, as a asset. Then I would say it's probably yeah. a fit, man. That's my feedback. Yeah. And it'd be a good idea to go to know what you're saying no to. If you, you if you reached a sweet spot and you're at two or 300 doors, there you go. And you're like, you know what? This is working great for me. I have a great lifestyle. Um, I'm not going to mess with it. But then to know what you're saying no to, if you're deciding not to go to 500 or 800 doors and try to grow up to that level and totally uh, operationalize it and maybe get it to where you can just step out of the business and let somebody else run it. That's great. We had a panel on institution dealing with institutional investors in year one and a lot of people got value to realize i have no interest in taking on 500 units for an institutional investor but somebody spoke on it they talked yeah. about the weeds what it was like to yeah. grow by 500 units within six months and then eventually the company internalized two years later yeah. you at least had some insight to know what you're saying no yeah. to. so yeah. yeah hopefully we'll see you there either way okay. this has been a ton of fun yeah i love uh, being able to jaw jack and for those that haven't yeah. checked it out where yeah. do they find the group on facebook what's the name of the facebook Group. It's uh, the 100 Door Club. And so if you just go on Facebook and search for 100 Door Club, or just shoot me an email at steve at crosslandteam.com, or go to austinpropertymanager.com and find me that way, then uh, we can talk about getting you added in. All right, folks, to check it out. Thanks for All coming right. on, man. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. That's a wrap.